Good morning. It's a wonderful song to sing as we head into this Thanksgiving week. As uh, we as believers have a special, I guess, a special calling this week to ensure our hearts are indeed filled with thankfulness as we think upon the Lord, as we think upon His blessing and how much He has given to us, how much He has graced us with for His abundant loving kindness that has been extended to us. So it's particularly appropriate that we sing a song that calls to mind all that we have to be thankful for. And yet it's interesting in light of Thanksgiving, you know, how easily we are disappointed. And really it's a reason why we need to continually remind ourselves to be thankful. It's why it's helpful to have a holiday like Thanksgiving. Without a doubt, at one time or another, every person here this morning has experienced unmet expectations and the disappointment that follows. Unmet expectations can also have a number of consequences. And a lot of times these expectations have nothing to do with what someone else has promised us or something we should have. It's all about what we think we should have or what we think should happen. Those consequences can be things that perhaps easily lead you to becoming concerned or worried, losing hope, just overall disappointment, loss of faith in someone or something. But have you ever experienced unmet expectations with God? Again, not because God has specifically promised you something, but because you expected something of him. Have you ever expected things to turn out one way only for them to go another? Perhaps you were sure God was going to do something else. Well, you're not alone. John the Baptist, the greatest man to ever live, experienced this late in his ministry. Languishing in prison while Jesus is telling disciples that they must suffer and die, John begins to wonder how this is supposed to usher in the kingdom of God. If Jesus, the Messiah, the long-hoped-for deliverer, if this is who he is, then how can John the Baptist, the greatest prophet, to ever walk the face of the earth, be imprisoned, languishing under the tyranny of evil Herod? How much longer will the promised Messiah and King, the creator of the world, allow this injustice, this wrong, to go unpunished and to continue? I mean, the coming Messiah is supposed to bring an end to injustice, an end to ill treatment, an end to sickness, to disease and death, and yet John has heard that Jesus, far from ending it, is now preparing his disciples for ill treatment and martyrdom. That doesn't sound like the start of a new messianic reign and messianic kingdom that John was expecting. John is thus perplexed and needs to be reassured in the midst of prison that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, the promised Messiah. That even though his Coming is not being worked out according to John's expectations and timing that Jesus is indeed who John himself proclaimed him to be. Perhaps you're struggling this morning wondering if God really cares. Asking yourself, if God is really my father, then how could he allow these things to happen? Perhaps you're struggling with sickness, the loss of persons close to you, doubt over financial security. If this describes you, or if you've ever had doubt, 
or questions creep in, then this reminder that Matthew provides us from Jesus' interaction with John the Baptist and with his disciples, and the questions that John asks, they are for us this morning. So let's look together as we seek to encourage and strengthen our faith in the midst of an unjust world while anticipating the coming of this expected one. If you haven't already turned there, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11 as we continue in our study. We concluded last week with Jesus' finishing of his instructions to the 12 disciples, and there in verse 1, he departed from there to partake of the same, very same ministry he sent his disciples on, to teach and preach amidst the cities of Galilee. And we pick up in verse 2. Now, when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. And he said to him, Are you the expected one? Or shall we look for someone else? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning desiring to demonstrate thankfulness in our hearts. And Father, yet we must confess that there are times where we assume, we presume upon what we think you should do, how we think you should act. Father, and that is when the doubt begins to creep in, when our faith needs to be strengthened. Help us this morning as we look at this example from John the Baptist, this example with your interaction that Matthew has recorded for us that our faith would be strengthened, that we would learn from this principles that would help us to apply when these same temptations come our way. Thank you for your word which you have given to us. We thank you for your spirit who enlightens us and gives us understanding. In your name, amen. Verse 2 of chapter 11 begins a larger section that will conclude in chapter 16, verse 20. And there's going to be a couple of other sections that you can break this up with in the midst of this. But within this larger section, there's two major themes that become very apparent. And we'll continue to come across these themes and encounter them and have to deal with them. The first is the identity of Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God. Making it crystal clear that Jesus is the Messiah. Secondly... It's the increasing or growing refusal and rejection of Jesus, especially by the Jewish religious leaders. It's really quite a paradox, as the identity of Christ is made more sure and more certain, the rejection becomes greater and stronger. And we'll encounter that as we continue through this section. This morning we come to the question of Jesus' messiahship and his identity Questioned by perhaps one of the least suspecting of persons, John the Baptist. Verses 2 and 3 open with a scene shift from what we've been studying. We cut from Jesus sending his disciples out to a dark and dank prison. John the Baptist is there. 
We learned in Matthew 4.12 that Jesus, that John had been arrested. And in fact, that was part of what initiated Jesus' Galilean ministry. And then whatever the exact nature of John's imprisonment leading up to his death, he was apparently able to have continued interaction with his disciples. And these disciples of John continued to bring news of Jesus' ministry and works, which would likely have included his teaching and his miracles. Yet in all the reports that John was hearing, there was something missing. John had prophesied and proclaimed of a coming Messiah who would usher in the kingdom of God with the judgment and wrath of God against all unrighteousness. Men who would not repent. This Messiah was to come with a winnowing fork in his hand. He would clear the threshing floor, gather in the wheat, and would punish the unrepentant with unquenchable fire. But where was the fire and brimstone? Where was the judgment? Where was the winnowing? Where was the reign of the king and the setting of captives free? During his imprisonment then, John begins to have questions filling his mind, creating doubt in his understanding and his expectations. He's locked up, he's in prison, he's not free to go to Jesus personally and ask him to hear his words for himself. He must rely on the words of others. Nonetheless, and John is to be commended for this and is an example to be followed, rather than live in this state of perplexity, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus directly, are you the expected one? We have in John an important reminder here to not allow present circumstances to cause us to doubt God's eternal promises. Like prophets before John who expressed doubt or concern while being hard-pressed, he hasn't lost faith. But he desires for it to be affirmed. It has become shaky. John has not lost confidence or trust in the Old Testament promises of the Messiah. Far from it. Because he even says, if you're not the one, then should we expect another? He fully believes that what God has promised in the Old Testament will come to pass. That hasn't wavered in the least. But John expresses doubt over his expectations and his understanding of how the Old Testament promises should unfold and should be fulfilled. To a certain extent, we can all take comfort that the greatest man to ever live, and that was according to Jesus, if you just look over to verse 11 of chapter 11, Jesus says, born among women, there is no man greater than John the Baptist. And so to a certain extent, we can take comfort that the greatest man to ever live struggled with this perplexity, expresses this confusion, and requires the insight and comfort that only Christ can provide. Likewise, Jesus repeatedly corrected even his faithful disciples and apostles, saying throughout his ministry, O you of little faith, or how long will you doubt? It was over and over and over again. Matthew 8, 26, Matthew 14, 31, Matthew 21, 21, Matthew 28, 17, Mark 11, 23, Mark 16, 11, Luke 12, 28. And it appears over and over again where Jesus has to assuage the doubts and the concerns and the perplexities of his faithful disciples, faithful followers, in light of their expectations. And yet while we can take comfort that we are not alone when perplexity and doubt or confusion arrives, this doubt cannot long remain in a believer without giving way to sin. James addresses this in James 1 where he says in verses 6 through 8, 
But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Where did John's doubt come from? Well, as one commentator identifies, in the near context, we know that John had announced that Jesus was the eschatological judge. Far mightier than John himself, and on the verge of wielding that winnowing fork of separation from chapter 3. But now John is in prison. This does not feel like the coming of a kingdom or the overturning of wickedness. And in terms of Scripture's wider context, there are several parallels of prophets going from faith to doubt and back to faith again. We see this in Moses in Exodus 5. We see this in Elijah in 1 Kings 18 and 19 as he hides in the mountains saying, Am I alone left? We see this of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 20 as he doubts and many others. This really reminds us that John is human. A mighty prophet, yes. The greatest prophet to ever live, yes. And yet he was a man. This was a real question. He had real concerns. He had real perplexion. Not because he had lost all faith, but because he needed that faith to be encouraged and to be strengthened. So what does John do? He turns to the source of his faith to be encouraged in his faith. Jesus Christ. When our faith seems weak, when we are discouraged and do not understand why wickedness seems to triumph, we must turn to the same source, to Christ, to the words of life and the words of hope that God has given to us in Scripture. John had the privilege of doing this to the living Word of God while he walked upon this earth. But prophets and saints before turned to God in times of trial to have their faith strengthened. All you have to do is read the Psalms to see this happen over and over again. You read as men like David and others confessed their struggles and their doubts. And one of the things I love about the Psalms is they're willing to say what we're too afraid to say. They express what we think, but we don't want to say because it doesn't sound Christian enough. But you watch these psalmists as they express these doubts, these concerns, these perplexities, the realities of the life that they're living the wickedness that they're living among. And as they express this, you watch what they do and they begin to reflect upon the character of God, to reflect upon his promises, turning to his word, to the word of life. And as they do that, you're hard-pressed to find a psalm that does not end with comfort. Not because the circumstances have changed, not because wickedness has ceased, but because their strength has been Their faith has been strengthened as they put their hope in Christ, in the Word of God. Now John's expectation of the promise of a coming one, this wasn't a wrong expectation. In fact, it was the right expectation. It was perfectly reasonable. In fact, as we see, Jesus does not correct John's expectation of a Messiah or coming expected one. In fact, he affirms that the Messiah is coming. But John developed an expectation of the coming one that went beyond what Scripture had explicitly said. And yet he had an understanding of this this one who would come as he familiarized himself with Old Testament promises and passages such as 
Isaiah 35, 4, we read this morning. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Or Isaiah 59, 20, a redeemer will come to Zion. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. Or Hosea chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to us like rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. And Zechariah says in Zechariah 14.5, You will flee by the valley of my mountain, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord, my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. So John had a right expectation that there was one who would come, that the Messiah would come. But he had additional expectations, expectations of this coming kingdom that were not being realized. So he sends his, so how does Jesus respond to this line of questioning from John, this, these two questions, are you the expected one or should we expect another? Well, as Jesus is so fond of doing, he sends John's disciples on a mission, tells them to go, to report to John what they see and hear. Now, John has clearly been receiving reports and news of Christ's work, presumably some of it from his disciples, perhaps even from the guards who were guarding him. Jesus was a big deal at this time. There weren't a lot of guys going around raising the dead, making the lame walk, helping people see who were blind. So news and reports were reaching John, but it appears that there was something lacking in these previous descriptions. There was something missing. And so now, so that John's confusion would be laid to rest, Jesus gives these disciples of John very specific instructions on what they are to report back to John regarding what they have seen and heard. To summarize it, to put it concise, so that the message and the answer is unmistakable. He says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. John, Jesus' answer, while brief, is profound. As one commentator notes, on the one hand, his words offer the strongest possible yes to the first part of the Baptist's question. The deeds that Jesus has been performing are the long-expected signs of renewal and restoration in Israel. God is at work establishing the new age of salvation. This is the Messiah. The age of salvation is here. He is the one who was to come. But on the other hand, Jesus' words invite John to accept in faith the strangest of all paradoxes in the history of the world, that the reign of God is broken into history in the person of Jesus. He is, in fact, the coming one. He is the promised Messiah. But the power of evil men remains strong, and Christ will not overthrow that evil yet. Christ has come to save his people from their sins, and yet he teaches his followers to expect opposition and hatred for a time. Jesus' answer summarized the promise and the hope of the Messiah from Isaiah. 
Isaiah was filled with promises of the coming one. In Isaiah 26, 19, we read, Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn. And the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. A few chapters later in Isaiah 29, 18, on that day the deaf will hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. Isaiah 35, 5, which again we read this morning, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The very next verse, then the lame will leap like a deer, the tongue of the mute will shout for joy, for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Then Isaiah 61, 1, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners. John would have been familiar with these passages. He would have known immediately what this message that Jesus sent back meant. That no, there is not another one to look forward to. No, there is not another Messiah. The Christ is here. But there's another important aspect of Jesus' answer that really answers the question behind the question that John had. These passages from Isaiah that Jesus summarizes all include in their contexts descriptions of eschatological judgment that awaits those who oppose God and his Messiah. This directly addresses the doubt and perplexity behind John's question. John came prophesying the imminent judgment of the world, the need to repent in light of the coming Messiah, and the judgment that would come with him. But like so many of the prophets before him, there was no recognition of this gap in time, or this initial coming, and then a coming with judgment. As a result, while in prison, John begins to wonder and begins to question, considering what Jesus is teaching and preaching, where is the judgment that is supposed to come? Where's the divine reckoning that will usher in the age of the messianic rule? But by using each one of these passages, Jesus is both answering John's immediate question, are you the expected one? Yes. But he's also asking that question behind the question. He is indeed the Messiah, and this judgment and reckoning will certainly happen, just not yet. He uses passages that all pertain to judgment and reckoning. But what Jesus does is he provides an ellipsis. He quotes just the first part. He leaves out the judgment found in these passages, providing perhaps the first hints within his teaching that this judgment is yet future and is not tied to this initial coming. This becomes clearer and clearer as Jesus continues his ministry and teaching and as the rejection of Israel is made clearer and more manifest. Jesus' answer assumes familiarity and understanding of the Old Testament. And yet this answer was in no way ambiguous. It was crystal clear. He is the expected one. And John, you have not entirely misunderstood. You only had the wrong expectation, the wrong assumption about timing. It will indeed take place. Jesus concludes his answer to John by summarizing the entirety of the Beatitudes that we studied 
here in verse 6 by saying, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Jesus summarizes what took us about 10 weeks to get through. This passage has strong ties back to Matthew 5.3, especially considering the final statement in the preceding verse concerning the gospel being preached to the poor. In fact, you can turn there back to Matthew 5, verse 3. It's the beginning of these Beatitudes. We describe these Beatitudes as the gateway into the Sermon on the Mount. It's the door through which you must enter. And it begins with the first primary question, are you a child of God? Well, where does that begin? It begins with one who is poor in spirit. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up onto the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their spiritual neediness and their dependence upon Christ for salvation, who recognize the gravity of their sin and their need for a Savior, who repent and cast themselves upon the mercy of the Messiah. Here in verse 6 of chapter 11, the opposite of these poor in spirit persons are pictured. That is, those who stumble over the Messiah. This term translated as stumble in the New American Standard or offense in the English Standard Version. It can likewise be translated as to fall away. In context here, it's tantamount to saying fall into unbelief or apostasy. And it's, it's used in that same sense throughout Matthew. It's used in Matthew 13, chapter 24, chapter 26 in this way. In fact, Matthew 13, 21, we read... Yet he who has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the world, immediately he falls away. And this is that very same word being used. The idea of stumbling over the words of Christ immediately also brings, back, brings to mind another passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 8. In Isaiah 8, we read in verse 13, It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Then he shall become a sanctuary. But to both the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. Here in Matthew 11, we see two types of persons those who fall in worship and repentance, and those who fall or stumble over the Messiah into judgment. And what this really highlights, what this makes crystal clear, is that one's eternal destiny will be determined by one's response to Jesus Christ. The final judgment will be a judging of what one believes about Christ. And we're not talking about mere intellectual assent, because as James notes, even the demons believe and shudder. We're talking about faith and belief that throws itself on the mercy of Christ, trusting in his death and his sacrifice on the cross as the only means of forgiveness from sin. This is why we read in Acts that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, whereby we can be saved. It is only in Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've You've never recognized the gravity of your sin. 
You never understood the weight and the judgment that accompanies that. Understand that John was not wrong that judgment is coming. It most certainly is. It's appointed unto every person once to die, and after this is the judgment, as the writer of Hebrews says. And so the call is to not wait, not another day. Today is the day of salvation. To call upon the Lord, to repent of your sins, and to cast yourself upon the mercy of Christ. To cast yourself at his feet, not to stumble over him into unbelief, into eternal punishment. There's really several important points of application that come from the passage we've looked at this morning. And in our remaining time, I want to draw out several of them. To begin with, this passage highlights the folly of assuming to know exactly how God works and what to expect God at every turn in this life. Matthew's recording of John's response to Jesus' ministry and message reminds us not to presume to know how God will act. As Keener notes, this text reminds us that God does not always act the way his servants expect him to act. There are many persons in the church and world today who think they know exactly what God's plan is and how he intends to act. There's some who think they can even bring it about. And while God has certainly revealed much about his will, he keeps much a secret. And he does this very purposefully. It's so that we would be forced to turn to him in neediness and faith. If we knew the end of the story, we wouldn't be turning to the author of the story. Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, that is in the heart of man, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. What is he saying? He's saying that he purposely keeps his plans and his purposes a secret from man. It's not that he never reveals anything, but he never reveals the whole story. And he does this so that we would turn in reliance and dependence upon him. In Ecclesiastes 8.17, Solomon goes on to say, I saw every work of God. I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover and though the wise man would say, I know, he cannot discover. That's why Job declared in Job 5, 8 through 9, But as for me, I would seek God and I would place my cause before God, who does great and unsearchable things, wonders without number. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 29, 29, saying, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. What he's saying is we don't know the mind of God, but he's giving us plenty in his word in scripture for us to follow. Don't go beyond the bounds of scripture. You may have heard the expression, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. The more biblical and theological or theologically correct expression is found in Proverbs 16.9 where we read that the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We will avoid much disappointment, spiritual discouragement, and doubt, and frailty of faith in this life if we refrain from making or believing dogmatic statements concerning how God will act or what he will accomplish outside of what he has clearly revealed in Scripture. 
and what the Holy Spirit has preserved in the scriptures you hold in your hand. We must, must not allow our unmet expectations, these expectations that we bring to bear, that we bring to the text, that we add to scripture. We must not allow these things to cause us, especially when they're not met, to lose our excitement, our motivation, to stop thinking and hoping for the return of Christ as much as we should. Nothing is going to steal your joy so much as continually hoping in something that doesn't take place. But the problem is we create our own hope. This is why the scoffers, James, uh, Peter had to address these scoffers in 2 Peter 3, saying, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. We must not bring our own expectations, our own assumptions, our own thoughts about how God should act and assert them on God, to place them on God as if this is what he must do for me to hope in him because we will be disappointed. Another point of application is found when we note that Jesus' response to John identifies that the answer to John's questions already existed in Scripture. By referring to the Old Testament text, Jesus is calling upon John to recognize and trust what has already been written. In other words, when you're doubting, turn to Scripture. Go to what has been clearly revealed. At Canton Bible, we emphasize the study of Scripture, not so much that we have a list of do's and don'ts, though this can be useful as we want to know how to please the Lord who we love because he first loved us. But our primary reason is so that we would know and understand our great God and Savior so that our hope would be grounded in the truth of what God has revealed and preserved in the Bible for us. In fact, to, to have doubt, to have faltering faith, and to not turn to God's word, to neglect a study of God's word as a Christian, it's like complaining of hunger while at a Thanksgiving feast because you don't want to bother to pick up the plate, the fork, and the knife. It's lunacy. Regular and careful study of God's word can be one of the greatest defenses against doubt and perplexity in the Christian life. We're also reminded from this text of the importance of studying Scripture for ourselves. Not simply taking someone else's word for it. John had been hearing reports of Jesus. But now to set his concerns at rest, John goes directly to the source. Teachers and preachers are a tremendous blessing to the church. In fact, Ephesians makes it clear that God has given them as a gift to the church. And yet they're never to be a substitute for studying God's word for yourself. The joy of the Bereans in Acts, who Paul held up as an example, the joy of the Bereans would have been stunted if they did not study scripture for themselves. Before and after Paul arrived with the message of the salvation in Christ. The reason they sought the scripture so eagerly, the reason their joy was so great, the reason they were so enthusiastic is because they studied scripture for themselves so that when they heard these things taught, they, they could latch onto it with greater depth and understanding than otherwise. And so we're thankful and blessed to have teachers and we need to be reminded of the importance of studying God's word for ourselves and going to the source. 
As we conclude, I want to take us back to John. Sitting in his dark prison cell with death imminent. From the darkness of his cell, he does not ask Christ to be freed. Did you notice that? He didn't send a message saying, when are you going to get me out of here? But rather, are you the Messiah? It's not relief from temporal circumstances or alleviation of his present suffering that concerns John. It is the coming of Christ the King. You see, John may have been a captive by human terms, but what really captivated his soul, what really captured him, what was the source of his hope and his joy in the midst of suffering? It was the hope and the promise of the Messiah who would come and reign. And he doesn't want to lose this hope. And we've been offered the exact same hope. In fact, the hope we have is exactly what John was looking to affirm. We have only to look toward the return of Christ and for all that John longed to see to find this encouragement and this comfort. The writer of Hebrews encourages believers in Hebrews 10.37 saying, For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And that was to provide encouragement and comfort. This is an allusion to Habakkuk 2.3 where the prophet wrote, For the vision is not yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. Wait for it. Hope for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. This is part of a trail of Old Testament promises that anticipate and look toward the coming of the Messiah, the return of Christ, when he comes to establish his reign on this earth. This promise is found much earlier than Habakkuk. It goes all the way back to Genesis. In Genesis 49, we're in the midst of Jacob's blessing of his sons. And in 49.10, he has arrived at Judah and says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This term Shiloh can be translated, the one to whom it belongs. In other words, until the one to whom the scepter and the ruler's staff belongs arrives. In fact, that verse from Genesis 49 is behind the names of two of our children, Judah and Shiloh, both of which are reminders of the hope we have in the coming Christ who will reign in righteousness. So the final question this morning is, are you looking for and preparing for the expected coming one? Titus says, or Paul writing to Titus in Crete says in Titus 2.11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to, for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possessions, zealous for good deeds. In the weeks ahead, we'll continue to expand upon our understanding of what the reign of Christ means and what it looks like. What it looks like now and what it looks like in eternity. But his coming, his return, 
It is the reunion for which all true disciples hope and long for. If you need to stimulate this longing in your life, if you need to encourage this hope and this anticipation, study Christ. The more you learn about him, the more you're going to long to be with him. The more you're going to long to see his appearing. Revelation 22 closes saying this about the expected one. And you can turn there if you'd like. It's all the way at the end, the very last chapter of your Bibles. Revelation 22. First in verse 7. This is the assurance and the promise we have of Jesus Christ. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And down in verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, the immoral persons, the murderers, the idolaters, everyone who loves and practices lying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. May we look for the coming of Christ with steadfast hope and excitement. And may our hope put to death any of the doubts that come our way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the words we read and studied and looked at together this morning. Thank you for the encouragement that comes in seeing how we are to deal with doubt. Father's encouragement and understanding that we're not alone in this, and yet, Father, we do not want to remain in any sort of doubt. Father, we, we ask that you would help us to develop a greater awareness of who you are, to invigorate our study, our love for you, as that would stir our hope as we long to be with you more and more, as we, we relish the time we have today and now in this life, in your word and through prayer and through the fellowship that you provide through your body, the church. But Father, we gather together for the very reason of anticipating together your coming and your return. Father, may this joy and this hope encourage us in the midst of a world that is very sinful, that is very wicked, where people are hurting, where... People are despairing. Lord, may we be faithful to be lights in the midst of this world. May we be the salt of the earth that you have called us to be. In your name, amen.